Good morning. And uh, let's open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together today, that we may come to you as a family, that we may learn from each other and learn from our message, how you work in each one of our lives, and each one of our lives are unique, and, and you work uniquely in each one. So Lord, we invite in the Holy Spirit, and we ask that he be with us, that our hearts be open, and that we learn today how more we come in a little bit brighter than we, or leave a little bit brighter than when we came in, and being able to walk in your path. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's worship our Lord. Good morning, everybody. Good, morning. Good, to, be, good to be back in the state of Arizona where you were, I was welcomed with green um, hillsides as we were landing and the rain just keeps coming, so praise you, Jesus. The way of meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. No person is meek by nature. We insist on our own way, even if we are mild-mannered by nature. And if someone blocks our way, mm -mm 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 -mm. Moses was meek but he was not meek by nature. God worked meekness into his life over a 40 year period. Peter certainly wasn't meek by nature. He was impetuous, saying and doing the first thing that came into his mind. But little by little, the Holy Spirit of God transformed Peter after the resurrection of Jesus. And before his conversion, Paul was not meek. His job was to persecute Christians. Yet Paul wrote to the church of Gal Galatia, the fruit of the spirit is gentleness, goodness, and meekness. It is our human nature to be proud and self-assertive, not meek. Only the spirit of God can transform our lives through the new birth experience and then make us over again into the image of Christ. He is our example of the true meekness. And our hope for today, teach me, Lord, to live for the one and not number one, and help me overcome my nature and yield to the Holy Spirit to live long in his image.
Numbers 22 talks about a man named Balaam, also a king named Balak, and the country of Moab. Balaam was summoned by the king to curse Israel. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Then God's anger was aroused because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. And he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have abused me. I wish there was a sword on my hand, for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would also have killed you and let her live. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, 
I have sinned, for I did not know it. You stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. The second chapter, 22nd chapter of Numbers gives the whole story, if you want to get the context intact. Would you stand with me and we'll recite the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Stand and join us. Testament reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Oh, there it is. <laughs> One Sabbath day, as Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. She had been bent double for 18 years and was unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Dear woman, you were healed of your sickness. Then he touched her and instantly she could stand straight. How she praised God. But the leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. There are six days of the week for working, he said to the crowd. Come on those days to be healed, not on the Sabbath. But the Lord replied, you hypocrites, each of you works on the Sabbath day. Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall in the, 
on the Sabbath and lead it out for water? This dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? This shamed his enemies, but all the people rejoiced at the wonderful things he did. You're lucky, Ray, you get to work on the Sabbath now. <laughs> you join us in our responsive reading. God of steadfast love, you sent your son to be the light of the world, saving people everywhere from sin and death. As Anna gave thanks for the freedom he would bring, and Simeon saw him in the dawn of redemption, Complete your purpose once made known to him. Make us the vessels of the, his light. That all the world may glory in the splendor of your peace. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you've created such a magnificent universe. Worlds without end. And all, all you had to do was think it and it occurred. And for some reason, you've entrusted some parts of it to each one of us. But we know that it really belongs to you. And you do call for us to give back, to share, to share both your word and, our, and the gifts you have given with others so that others may come to know you. So, Lord, we ask for your guidance in this, that whatever the gifts are that we receive, that we, we do use them in the way that would be pleasing to you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You want to rise for the doxology?
morning. Let us pray. Lord, free us from our mediocrity. Remind us that you have given us everything we need to live a godly life, one that is completely pleasing to you. Remind us that we can rest in green pastures beside your still waters. We can feast at the table prepared for us of your goodness and grace, even here in this barren land, because your hand of grace does indeed reach down to us. Your voice does indeed speak to us that we can be free, free of worries and the cares of this life, free of self. Now anoint every word you have given me to speak this morning, Father, for your glory and the blessed encouragement of these good people. In Jesus' matchless name, amen. My sermon this morning is entitled Divine Discontent. God has created a God-shaped vacuum in our hearts, our minds, our souls that can only be filled with himself. And therefore, we have a divine discontentment. Let me read for you Psalm 107. Those who go down to the sea in ships, 
who do business on great waters. They have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They went up toward the heavens on the crest of the wave, then plummeted down again to the depths of the watery trough, and their courage melted away in their misery. They staggered and trembled like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. All their wisdom was useless. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He hushed the storm to a gentle whisper so that the waves of the sea were still. Then they were glad because of the calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonderful acts to the children of men. My mother had an expression that uh, she drilled into my head in my teenage years. Um, it took me quite some time to understand it. But she always said, still waters run deep. And Honestly, I didn't understand that until I was probably in my 30s and I was scuba diving in the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, if you've ever been in the Gulf of Mexico, there are tremendous currents which provide uh, <clears throat> prodigious waves. We, uh, the, the currents are so strong that when you take a dive boat out uh, if you don't want to find your dive boat in, somewhere in Mexico, you tie up to a, a drilling pier, which we did. But I've always noticed that when the waves are really choppy, say six feet waves, and I have dived in six feet waves. I've, I've been that crazy. But I, you get down to the bottom, especially the oil rigs in uh, the Gulf of Mexico are typically the bottom's about 100 feet. When you get down to that bottom, it is so very serene. It is so very calm. And you, uh, it's, uh, it, it just pacifies your soul. You can actually stand on the sandy floor and just observe the fishes. It's a beautiful thing. But still waters run deep. How does that apply to our souls? As Psalm 107 indicates, life on God's ocean can be formidable. It can be scary. When you live your life on the surface of God's great ocean that we call life, you will get tossed about. You will be shipwrecked and carried away by the enormous power of the currents and waves. I remember a funeral I attended with my son while he was still in high school. He had a youth minister that he was very, very fond of. And this youth minister was uh, very important in my son's spiritual development. This youth minister and his friend and uh, their two girlfriends were in Cozumel and not knowing 
how strong the currents are in Cozumel. His friend jumped in. And uh, before he knew it, he turned back and the current had carried him far from the boat. He swam back with all the energy he had and as he started fucking, the youth minister jumped in to save his friend. And they both drowned. I've dived Cozumel several times and I learned one bitter lesson in Cozumel. If you don't make it back to the boat, they don't come looking for you. The currents are so strong, they would never find you anyway. This is much like uh, our life on this earth. If you're lost, rarely does someone come looking for you. There's really only one place in this life that's truly safe, and that's at the deep end of God's ocean. When life becomes intense, when sea billows roll, you must be able to say yourself, it is well with my soul. I'm sure you know the story behind that hymn. When life gets so intense that it becomes visceral, that's a $10 word for gut-wrenching. When your life becomes visceral and your stomach's tied in knots, much like when you witness a bad car wreck and you see them loading a, a bloody person onto a stretcher, that's visceral. You need Holy Spirit fortitude. You need a mantra. We need to be able to say, I know that I know that I know my God will see me through. The great evangelist of the first awakening was Jonathan Edwards. He recorded this in his diary. God's purpose for my life was that I have a passion for God's glory and that I have a passion for my joy in that glory and that these two are one passion. They are the same. This is God's purpose for your life, to find joy in His glory. We are all created for God's glory. We are here on this earth to bring glory to his name. How's that going for you? Do you have a passion for the joy that you find in bringing glory to the name of God? That's why we're here, folks, to bring glory to God's name. I love how Jesus summed up the Sermon on the Mount. After all, the blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor. He summed it up by saying, let me tell you why you're here. You're here to be salt and light. Is your cup brimming with joy? Your joy is your witness. And your witness is the only Bible some people will ever read. Your joy is the only hymn some people will ever read. Sing. And your joy 
is the only sermon they may ever hear. Is your cup brimming with joy? Psalm 42. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? Day and night I have only tears for food while my enemies continually taunt me saying, Where is this God of yours? My heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. I walked among the crowds of worshipers leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy and giving thanks amid the sound of great celebration. God intends that you live in celebration. Your cup overflowing with his joy. Again, how's that going for you? I once preached a sermon to a church in North Dakota. Really got people riled up. I don't worry about that too much. As Jesus said, blessed is he who's not offended in me. If you read the Gospels, you realize that quite a few people got offended with Jesus. But they only got offended when he spoke the truth. I told them in this sermon, we come here every Sunday and we sing three hymns. We recite the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer. We listen to a brief sermon and tell ourselves, we worship God. We got her done. We worship God. But rarely do we worship in spirit and in truth. Sadly, we often tend to just go through the motions. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, cautions us, warns us not to go through the motions. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is. In other words, don't play church. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day of Christ's return drawing near. When was the last time you grabbed somebody by the hand and asked, how may I pray for you? Not how are you doing, how may I pray for you? Are we willing to do that right here in God's church house? Right in front of God and everybody? We should be. If we can't do it here, we can't do it at Walmart. Let me tell you a story about Walmart. I had a good friend, actually, he uh, sold me my house in uh, Dallas. I bumped into him at a Walmart on a busy Saturday, and he asked me, how are you doing? I said, I, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm having some complications at work, but other than that, I'm doing well. And immediately he grabbed my hand and bowed and started praying. Right in the front of Walmart, 100 people coming in, 100 people going out. He didn't care. And I thought, well, if this man's willing to pray for me in the middle of Walmart, by cracking, I'm going to join him. I'm going to receive the blessing he's praying on me. More often, our worship experience here in church is more like the drive-through at Mickey D's. Quarter pound of cheese, please, extra pickles. 
Thank you very much. I'll see you next week. Let's start a new tradition here this morning. Let's make an effort to not leave this building until we have prayed for someone, sincerely prayed for someone, hand in hand, face to face, and encourage them in their faith, or at least allow ourselves to be encouraged by someone else. Let me warn you if uh, my wife asks how you're doing. She's one of these Walmart prayers. She's going to stop you in your tracks and start praying for you. That's who she is. It's a blessing to watch her. This is her gift. But again, if we can't do it here in God's house, how are we going to do it at Walmart? How are we going to do it at work? In the parking lot at work, at school? How do we acquire Holy Spirit boldness? It takes Holy Spirit boldness to pray for people in Walmart. But we need this boldness. How many patriarchs or heroes of the Bible dared to say to God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. I recall only one. Moses. St. Paul didn't ask. But he got knocked off his horse anyway. Most of us aren't brave enough to ask God to show us His glory. But if you want to make an impact for the kingdom of God while you're still on this earth, you will only so by seeking God's glory. Jonathan Edwards, again, recorded this in his diary. He said, my purpose in getting away, he often rode out into the woods just for what he called divine contemplation. And on one occasion he said, my purpose in getting away was to seek God's glory and when that glory was revealed, I found myself face down on the ground wishing to become dust and at the same time wanting to remain there for." Encountering God is a serious thing. Seeking God's glory will change you. How many of you know the story of John Newton? He wrote Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. If you know the story of John Newton, you know he was the captain of a slave ship during the height of the slave trade in the 1700s. But if that's all you know, you only know half the story. Amazing Grace is written in the Pentatonic scale. 
Brother Rick can tell you all about the pentatonic scale. It's only the black keys on the keyboard. The old Negro spirituals, swing low, sweet chariot. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? All written in the pentatonic scale. And you might think, oh, well, they're, they're written in the minor scale. No pentatonic can be major or minor. But I ask you, did it escape God's notice that Amazing Grace, written in the pentatonic scale, is an homage, an homage, to all the African people forced into slavery who died in transit to the British colonies, including America? Twelve and a half million African people were transported on slave ships to the Americas. And 1.8 million did not survive the journey. But back to the seeking of God's glory. Once you've tasted God's glory, you become addicted. You become intoxicated. To the point that you want to live in that glory all the time. It is truly a divine discontentment. C.S. Lewis names this passionate longing for God with the German word sensut. It means an inconsolable longing in the heart for something we do not understand. At the end of his book, Pilgrim's Regress, Lewis defined it as that unnameable something, a desire that pierces us like a rapier, like the smell of a bonfire, the sound of wild ducks flying overhead in the winter, morning cobwebs in late summer, or the noise of falling waves, an inconsolable longing for God. Do you have that problem? Do you suffer from that malady? When was the last time you honestly longed for God? If you don't have this problem, if you don't struggle with an inconsolable longing for God, you have a worse problem. It's called complacency. And at this point, I'll remind you, anytime I preach to you, I preach to me first. If you don't have this problem, You may be in the depths of complacency. What does uh, Jesus have to say about complacency? You studied this with Pastor Frank a couple of weeks ago. Revelation 3, verses 14 through 19. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. 
So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so you will not be shamed of your nakedness. And ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. What is the opposite of love? Most people say hate. But the opposite of love is not hate. It is indifference. Nothing hurts more than indifference. What is complacency? We just read it. Indifference. We deceive ourselves into believing that we have God in a box. We wrap him up in a neat, tidy little package with a bow tied sweetly on top. We come to church once a week, spend an hour singing hymns and praying, listening to a lecture on spirituality, and then tell ourselves we are satiated with God. We have all of God we need. The first deadly sign of complacency. We don't see ourselves as sinners. Well, I'm not. I'm redeemed. No, you're a redeemed sinner. You will always be a sinner until heaven is your home. T.S. Eliot. He died in 1965. An American-British poet. He received the Nobel Laureate for Poetry. He wrote in many genres, but uh, I think some of his best work was his commentaries on Christianity. He said, He who is alone with his sins is utterly alone. Christians, notwithstanding their corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service to the church, may still be lost in their loneliness. The final breakthrough to biblical fellowship does not occur because though they fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not fellowship like the undevout. They do not fellowship like the sinners that they are. Pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. We have to permit, allow each other to be what we are, sinners. So everyone must conceal himself, conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship of other believers. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the congregation of the righteous. So we remain alone in our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. But the fact is, we are all sinners. Sinners redeemed by grace. You will never see the glory of God until you admit you are a sinner. And you need redemption. The second deadly sign of complacency 
we don't really believe that God loves us. I'll quote Brennan Manning, the author of the Ragamuffin Gospel. If you haven't read the Ragamuffin Gospel, you need to put it on your must-read list. He says, I believe that on Judgment Day, the Lord God asks, uh, if he asks us anything, he will ask us one question and only one. Did you really believe that I loved you? That I waited for you day after day, that I longed to hear the sound of your voice. The real Christians will answer, yes, Lord, I believed in your love, and I tried to shape my life as a response to it. But many of us who are practiced churchgoers will answer, well, no, Lord, I, I really didn't believe it. And there is the difference between the real believers and the name-only Christians that abound all over this land. No one can measure like a believer the depth and intensity of God's love. But then again, no one can measure like a believer the effectiveness of our gloom and pessimism, our low self-esteem, the despair of our self-hatred that block God's way to us. It is critical to lay hold of this basic truth of our faith that God is immense. Immense in power, immense in love, grace, patience, and forgiveness. Why do we need to understand this? Because you're only going to be as big for God as your concept of Him. Our concept of God is puny, therefore we live puny lives. We make God in our own image, and he winds up being as fussy, rude, narrow-minded, judgmental, legalistic, unloving, and unforgiving as we are. Ouch. The God I hear preached in most churches today is too small for me. Why? Because he is not the God of the Bible. He is not the God who is revealed to us in and by Jesus Christ, who is at this very moment standing before you saying, I have a word for you. I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet, every moment of sin and shame, every dishonesty and degraded love that has darkened your path. And right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship. And my word to you is this. I dare you, I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are, not as you should be. Why does Jesus say this? Not as you should be. Because none of us are as we should be. The third deadly sign of complacency. We don't understand the term sanctification. What is sanctification? It's a theological term. We associate it, well, if you remember the wedding at Cana, and Jesus asked for some vessels and had them filled with water. They probably stood three to four foot tall, herald, uh, I would imagine, 15 gallons or more. 
These were sanctification vessels, part of the Jewish cleansing. Before every meal, where do we get washing our hands before we eat? That's very mosaic. You cleanse your hands before you eat, or you're not kosher. But the sanctification process also involved bathing. So if we understand sanctification as washing ourselves clean, which we cannot do, only Christ can wash us clean. But hopefully it creates a mental picture for you. Sanctification simply is emptying ourselves of self. The result of emptying ourselves of self is holiness. What is holiness? Holiness is wanting God and nothing else. Let me give you some examples of self-denial. This is a big part of sanctification. John the Baptist communing with God in the wilderness, living off locust and wild honey. That's self-denial, folks. John had one aim, one ambition, preaching the arrival of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Isaiah preached naked for three years. Okay, chances are he wore a loincloth, but that's it. And God told him to preach like this for three years to give a visual warning to the Israelites that they were about to be led into captivity naked by the Assyrians. He preached repentance no matter what it cost him. No matter. And finally, King Manasseh of Judah was so incensed by one of Isaiah's prophecies that he had Isaiah wrapped in a sackcloth, placed in a hollowed out tree, and had the tree as well as Isaiah sawn in half. Whatever it cost. St. Paul, 2 Corinthians 11, 24-26, Paul records five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned and left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked and once spent an entire day and a night adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys, faced danger from rivers, from robbers, from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas, and from men who claim to be believers but are not. Sanctification is when God is still sovereign in your pain. Romans chapter 8, verses 18, 19, 22, and 23. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. 
For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste, a guarantee of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as adopted children of God, including the new bodies he has promised us. Anybody looking forward to that? Yes, amen. What is perfect sanctification? That sounds ominous. Let's explore that. Perfect sanctification. Jonathan Edwards again. Once as I sought the glory of God, I was in divine contemplation and prayer for about an hour. And for that hour, all thought and conception was swallowed up and I was emptied of self, annihilated and in tears. I just wanted to lie in the dust and be full of Christ alone, to live in him in heavenly purity, perfectly sanctified. What does it mean to be perfectly sanctified? It means to live wholly and completely in Christ, fully alive to him and him alone. And you say to me, preacher, I can't do that. You're talking about perfection. I cannot achieve that. Yes, I'm talking about perfection. But to Father God, your trying is perfection. Your commitment to trying is perfection. He takes your trying and your commitment and makes it perfection by the workings of his holy can I hear an amen? God grades on, <clears throat> excuse me, God grades on a curve. Bless his name. Sanctification is not daunting. It is not a life of masochism. It is the realization of our dreams. The fulfillment of what God has called us to. And what has God called us to? To know him. To be known by him and loved by him. We allow ourselves to be loved beyond our wildest dreams. Sanctification is a wonderful thing. Sanctification is when we know that we know that we know. That he who has created the cosmos is crazy about us. Head over heels in love with us. Why? Because we are his own. He is concerned about everything we're concerned about. And when we know that Father God loves us so much that he has adopted us to be his very own sons and daughters... We are sanctified. That sanctification was purchased on the cross. You just have to step into it. 
You just have to put on those robes. You just have to put on the clothes of salvation, justification, sanctification. And when you do that, you live in glorification. Can I hear an amen? If we are truly sanctified, we must question our motivations. We must ask ourselves, why do I go to church? Is it out of religious obligation or is it to meet God in the fellowship of his saints and to be strengthened by that fellowship? E.H. Peterson. Some people come to church looking for a way to make their life better, to feel good about themselves, while others come to church because they want God to save them and rule over them in his matchless grace and love. One group of these people see religion as a path to successful and happy living, and nothing that interferes with that success or interrupts that happiness will be tolerated. The other group sees religion not as a mere religious activity, but as the way of faith. A way in which hurting, flawed, and damaged persons become whole in their relationship with God. And for them, anything will be tolerated. Anything will be tolerated. Mockery, pain, persecution and even self-denial in order to deepen and enlarge that relationship with Father God. One is the way of enhancing what we want, while the other is a commitment of ourselves to becoming what God wants. Which are we this morning? Which are we? Pray with me. Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would saturate our beings this morning with the perfection that is your Holy Spirit. That you will feed and fill this inconsolable longing for you, that you will intensify that longing, that you will give us a craving for your holiness, a craving for your presence walking beside us. Lord, I think of Psalm 139. You go before us. You walk beside us. You walk behind us. Give us an intense sensitivity to your person, not only living in us, but without us, front, back, and both sides. Lord, we ask that you give us an insatiable appetite for your love and glory. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.
For my benediction this morning, I'd like to read to you Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 19 from the NLT. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down deep into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is his love. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great for anyone to fully understand. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Amen. If you'd like to stand, and we will sing Amazing Grace. <laughs> Praise that tall. 
Heavenly Father, I come before you as a sinner. I know that I am a sinner. I know that we all are. May our hearts always be open. May we be listening to your truth, listening for your, for your guidance through the Holy Spirit, that we too can be sanctified, that we can be as imperfect as we are, we can become perfect the way you want us to be. So Lord, let us accept our imperfections, but strive to be what you would have us be always. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.